Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Monday to you all. It's a good day. It's the start of a new week. And above all else, the Lord Jesus is reigning today, sitting on his throne, ruling over heaven and earth, crushing his enemies. It's a good day. Glad you're here with us as we continue to think through God's word together. We are continuing our study of the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to tell you on the front end here, I um, I may change up our path a little bit as I have been thinking, pondering some uh, conversations I've been having recently in, in light of what's uh, revealed here. I don't know. We'll see. just see how it goes. So uh, thanks, Juan, for praying for uh, the Lord's blessing on this study, and I, I hope that that is true. Uh, good morning, Hugo, and uh, Carrie, and Charlotte. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. So if you've been with us uh, through the study of Hebrews thus far, you know that he spent a lot of time in chapter 1 comparing Jesus to angels, not because he's particularly preoccupied with angels, but to get to this verse in chapter 2, what we call chapter 2, verse 1, which says... For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from it. And just by way of reminder, that is the concern in this entire letter. The author is concerned that his audience, former Jews who are now Christians, are going to drift away from a devotion to the gospel, to the sufficiency of Christ, and they're going to go back to Old Covenant ways sacrifices, temple worship, priesthood, all that, because they are being persecuted, presumably by the Jews. And so the author here is concerned that they don't drift away from that. And he says, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So for those of you who've been with us, this word spoken through angels, what is that word? What is the word that angels were part of delivering that brought every transgression and disobedience to be penalized? What, uh, what is it that the writer of Hebrews here is comparing uh, to something else that was brought by angels? Sorry, that's a muddled way to say it, but let me see if, uh, if any of our viewers here uh, know that. Yeah, Carrie got it. Well done. The law, the law of Moses. Uh, yes, Charlotte, excellent. The, uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the Levitical, uh, Leviticus, the Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, all those, right? The Law of Moses, that's the, the, the word spoken by angels, and it proved unalterable. God brought about the penalties for disobedience just exactly as he said he would. That was the word spoken through angels. He says, we won't escape, we can't escape if we neglect so great a salvation Delivered by the Son, because the Son is so far superior to angels. All right, we spent a lot of time, we spent a couple of weeks to get there, but that's, you've got to see that. You've got to see how this uh, argument progresses. So now he goes on. After it, that is the word spoken or the salvation spoken through the Son, after it was first spoken through the Lord, that is Jesus, so Jesus is the one who first proclaimed his salvation. Then he says it was confirmed by those who heard. It was confirmed to us. So he's including himself in, in the, the, the audience, with the audience, the, the 
the group that he's writing to, this word of, of the salvation was fo- first spoken by the Lord Jesus. Then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So firsthand witnesses kind of thing. And here, if you remember when we talked at the beginning of the study about the authorship of Hebrews, and, and I told you we don't know who this was, and there have been speculations. And for the first several centuries of the church, everyone assumed it was Paul even though he doesn't begin by stating his name like he does in the other letters. This verse is why a lot of people reject Paul. Because he says here, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So it sounds like the author did not hear it firsthand, but from those who had heard it firsthand. And so the argument is Paul did hear it firsthand. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? Acts chapter 9. And so Paul wouldn't say something like it was confirmed to us by those who actually heard it because he heard it himself. Now, that's a good argument, and that may be true. I think it's possible that Paul could still use his terminology because remember, Paul even described himself as a kind of a Johnny-come-lately. He was the least of the apostles. He... He didn't walk with Jesus and hear the message of salvation from Jesus in his pre-resurrection life and ministry kind of thing. So it's possible. I think it's possible to make this verse fit, Paul. But eh, I, I'm, I don't know. The bottom line is we just don't know. Uh, but it appears, though, that, that the author is saying the Lord gave us the message of salvation and that those who heard it from him also confirmed to us that this is true. And then he says, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So as the apostles went around raising the dead, healing the sick, as others were given gifts to do miracles and healings, That was all God testifying to the message that Jesus brought. So all those miracles we read in uh, in Acts, for instance, and remember even to the Corinthians, Paul writes and says, you all have these gifts of healings and miracles and so on. At least one of their purposes was to confirm the message. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you were there in Jerusalem and you saw Jesus alive, then you saw him die on the cross, and then you saw him alive again, you don't really need any more proof than that. But then some messengers come to, again, we'll take Corinth, and they start preaching about this dead guy in Jerusalem who came back to life. And people would say, yeah, sure. Maybe like the people in Athens, the Areopagus. Oh, tell us more of this strange teaching, uh, resurrection. Oh, sure. But then when you heal a blind man or some other sign of a, a you know, the power of deity there, suddenly you've got more credibility when you say, no, no, Jesus. I'm, I'm healing this man in the name of Jesus, the one I'm telling you who died and rose again. You see the point? So, so God is testifying. And for a Jewish audience, for a, for a group who was formerly Jews who have now come to Christ, do you see what he did here? He's confirming the fact by two or three witnesses. 
That was what the law required, right? So Jesus was a witness to the truth of this salvation. Those who heard Jesus confirmed it, and then God confirmed it by giving them signs and wonders. Two or three witnesses. So all of this is is Jewish. He, he's speaking the Jewish language, if you will. He's, he's communicating the way they would understand and saying, the law executed justice on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's all it took. You committed murder. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Here are two people that saw you do it. You're, you're condemned and you'll be executed. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. And his message is true because he testified to it. The other witnesses testified to it. And God, bearing witness through miracles, two to three witnesses, if you Hebrew audience, if you abandon Christ and go back to the old covenant, you stand condemned. You're rejecting Jesus and you're now his enemy, as we saw from Psalm 110 last week. So now he goes back to angels here. And I can see already, time is flying. <laughs> I can see I'm not going to be able to go as far as I wanted to today. That's all right. So, for he says, he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. So he's still comparing Jesus to angels and the message that Jesus brought to angels. And notice the framing here. God did not take this world, the, the world of men, the inhabited world is, is the, uh, the word here in English. It's, it's actually uh, oikemenen, which is uh, the word we get our word economy from. Uh, he did not subject the economy, <laughs> which doesn't mean exactly what we mean as far as a uh, financial setting, but it, it, it's included. He did not subject to angels the coming inhabited earth. Well, who did he subject the earth to? Now, now you, may, you may have an answer formulating, but think about a Jew, someone raised in Judaism, raised according to the law, who in their thinking was the earth in submission to. Now, now God, of course, but is there anything else? Yes. So track with me. So what I see we're going to have to do today is I want to unpack this. Uh, he's going to quote from the Old Testament. And as I have told you for the last few weeks, whenever you see a New Testament author quote the Old Testament, you need to go back and look at that quote in its original context and then come back and see how this New Testament author is using it. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to model that for you. So he quotes from Psalm 8. One has testified somewhere saying, and then he quotes Psalm 8. So rather than read the quote here, let's go back and look at Psalm 8. You know this one. It's been put to music by several different uh, artists. Michael W. Smith did it for those of you uh, of my, my generation. Um, uh, who's the guy that did it more recently? Uh, 
he was the guy who was the guitar player with Journey. Uh, um, why can I not think of his name? Anybody know? <laughs> uh, I can't get it. Anyway, there's a there's a newer guitar player, singer. He's got a couple other popular Christian songs, maybe 10, 15 years ago. But I cannot get his name. Anyway, so this, this has been uh, put to music by several people. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, one of the things, if you're going to understand Hebrew poetry, that you need to know is uh, whenever you see repetition, that is the one of the Hebrew ways of emphasis. Like we can underline and bold and italicized. Lon says Keith Green. Uh, did he do a song? He might have put this to, that sounds like something he would do. I'm not familiar with that. That's not who I was thinking of. Um, so the Psalm begins, Psalm 8 begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if you flip down here to verse 9, the, the last verse, it repeats it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that tells us these bookends, this repetition here tells us this is the main theme. He wants us to marvel at God's majesty. Notice something else. Let me give you another quiz. This word, and this is for you who are watching, those who are listening uh, while you're pumping that iron or driving to work, uh, I'll try to go slowly here so you can catch this. You can answer it out loud. Uh, this word, Lord, O Lord, our Lord, the first Lord is in all caps. What Hebrew word is that translating? While I'm waiting, Lon says definitely he may have been the first Christian singer to do it. Huh, well, I'll have to look that up. I like Keith Green, and I'm sure he did something wonderful with uh, Psalm 8 here. All right, so, O Lord, the first, all caps there, is translating what Hebrew word? Waiting, waiting. Somebody's going to get it. I know you are. You're a smart audience. Lon got it. Excellent. Juan got it. Lon and Juan, how's that? It rhymes. I love it. Oh, Lord, our Lord. So that is Yahweh. I am. Good job, Carrie. Nicely done. All right. Another quiz. This next Lord is a capital O. Oh, I'm sorry, capital L with small case O-R-D. What Hebrew word is that translating? I'm going to be really impressed if you get this one. Let me give you a moment. So it's O Yahweh, our what? Now, some of you may have those translations that we talked about that actually transliterate it. It's kind of cheating, <laughs> but that's all right. You can cheat on this. What's that second Lord? Whenever you see Lord with a capital L and then a small O-R-D, do you know what that's translating? Anyone? I'm not, I'm not seeing it. That is the word uh, Juan says... This one I got wrong first. Yes, Adonai. Very good. So it's O Yahweh, our Adonai. And Adonai means sovereign one. Kind of a, a king. Think sort of a king. Sovereign, in control. Uh, Carrie, got it? Yep, it is Adonai. So we see this construction a lot. Remember we saw this in Psalm 110 and how fascinating it was that David says, um, Yahweh, my, I'm sorry, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And how crazy that is to think that there is a, an Adonai, a sovereign one over David who's not Yahweh. Here, uh, he brings it together. Uh, 
talking to the same one here. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. By the way, that is a very difficult phrase in uh, Hebrew. This is a pretty good translation, but it's still, it's kind of unclear what exactly is being said here. So I'm going to move on past that. Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So whatever this first concept about uh, establishing strength or sometimes your translations say establishing praise uh, can be a bulwark, a wall, whatever this is that he's doing with infants and stuff. The goal is that his enemies, that the Lord's enemies and those who are revengeful, that they will be crushed. They will, they will cease. So David says, you've displayed your splendor in the heavens, O majestic one, to destroy your enemies. Okay. Now here, David says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've ordained. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just gone out at night? I remember uh, years ago, I was on a float trip uh, here in, in Colorado, uh, whitewater rafting, and we, we rafted all day, and then uh, we spent the night, camped, and then finished and went further the next day. And we were out in this beautiful part of Colorado, which is kind of redundant, isn't it? And uh, it was a place you know, far removed from any really civilization, and so there were no lights Oh, the stars. I'm sure you've been in situations like that where you can see uh, to a magnitude more stars than you can see in the city, for instance, because there are, other no, there are no other competing lights, and it's, it's just glorious. Well, that's what Dave is doing. He's, he's out somewhere at night probably, and he's looking up in, this, in the, the moon and the stars, and he says, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the heavens. I'm thinking about the work of your hands, your fingers. You made all these stars, Lord. And he's just in awe of all the heavenly bodies that he can see. And he, he, he asks this rhetorical question. What is man that you take a f- thought of him or the son of man that you care for him? In this vast universe of creation. And, and David didn't know the beginning of it, did he? He doesn't. He had no concept of all the galaxies that we know that exist. He just saw what you can see looking up at night, and he's just marveling that God would care about little insignificant man, humanity, in light of this vastness that he's created. Well, what does he mean? He goes on. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Who's the him? It's man. Do you see that? He's asking this rhetorical question. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. You, yet you've made him, you've made man a little lower than God. You crown him. Crown whom? man with glory and majesty. Now, I need to talk about a textual variant here before I unpack this a little further. Uh, You notice here it says God. Back in Hebrews, what does it say? 
angels. You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. Well, just like we saw in other texts that are quoted here, the Hebrew here has Elohim. And notice it's capital G-O-D, different from Lord or Lord. Different from Lord with all caps or Lord with a capital L. This is God. This is how our English translations translate Elohim, which can refer to the one we call God, or it can at times refer to angels. And the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this, translates it angels. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is quoting here. So for our purposes, I'm going to take the Hebrew, the Hebrews translation, which is the Greek translation, and I'm going to call this angels instead of God, because that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. So he asked the question, what is man or the son of man that you take care of him or take care for him? You have made him, you've made man a little lower than angels. You crown man with glory and majesty. Well, what do you mean by that, David? You make him man to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What things? All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea, all of it. Now, all right, you guys are so good. You're, you're batting a thousand today with my quizzes. Let me give you one more. Where would David get the idea that man is ruling over the earth? Is this just some special revelation that God's given to David? He's out there pondering the heavens and God through the Holy Spirit just pops us into his mind and, and he gets it. How could, how, could, how could David possibly know that man is ruling the earth? Yeah, Peter nailed it. Genesis 1. right? He's, he's, he's reflecting on Genesis 1 as he looks out at the stars. So here's Genesis 1, starting in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, whenever you talk about the image of God, we use this to uh, talk about the dignity of humanity, right? In, in uh, pro-life settings. And this is where our worth comes from. Other creatures were not made in the image of God. And that's all true. But then what we tend to do is we speculate about what it means to be made in the image of God. And we talk about having rational powers or self-consciousness or a moral... moral uh, uh, inner voice kind of thing as opposed to animals that just act out of instinct or whatever. Maybe, and maybe that's all part of it, but that's not exactly what the Bible says. In this context of being made in the image of God, look what he says. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So at least I think at least some aspect of being made in the, in the image of God is the idea of ruling and subduing. Elsewhere, God declares, the whole earth is mine. Everything is mine. I'm the sovereign one. I'm the creator. I'm the maker. It all exists for me. I rule over heaven and earth. And now these creatures that I have made in my image, humans, 
I am now entrusting a, a vice regency, a vice rule. I'm giving them the authority to rule over the earth under my rule. I think that's attached to this idea of image. So God commands mankind, make more of you, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with more humans and subdue this earth, rule this earth. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question as we wrap up here. Did God ever rescind that command? Did he ever say, did Jesus show up and say, yeah, never mind, never mind. All that matters now, now hear me in context. (laughs) Did Jesus say all that matters now is the inner heart? I just want you to, I'm just going to rule in the hearts of man. And I want you to think differently and feel differently, but this has nothing to do with ruling the earth anymore. Now that I've come, make disciples and just hang on and survive until you die or I come back but no longer are you to rule the earth because my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. Therefore, that whole business in Genesis 1 about ruling the earth, I'm done with that. It's not what I see. Not what I see at all. All right, we'll come back to this tomorrow. But give this some thought. David reflecting on Genesis 1 And how God gave rule and subduing authority to mankind says, ah, this is is astounding to me that in this vast universe you would give man this authority to rule and subdue the earth and we are over all the creatures. Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote Psalm 8 that is alluding to Genesis 1 and make a point about man and Jesus. And for that, you'll have to come back tomorrow so we can check it out. Have a great Monday. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow.